Nice night. Nice night, ain't it? Welcome aboard. Okay. Wednesday. Middle of the week. On a Wednesday, the 16th of August, 2023. The world keeps turning. The world keeps burning. And here we are. We're going to be doing another fun, fun show tonight. I am, I'm excited not only for this show, but I'm excited for the third session of Book Club tonight that begins at 8.30. For The Devil in the White City. By Eric Larson uh, with co-host Lindsay Sharman of the Rogueways podcast. So that happens tonight. For those of you who are going to be on board, but you have some thoughts that you have yet to contribute to the official thread, you still have time to get in there on the forum. Get read. Have it read aloud tonight in the session. But in the meantime, we have a lot of great conversation to have, and that is with Dr. Diana Pasolka. She is the author of books with titles like American Cosmic and in November has a new book coming out called Encounters. And we're going to get into what all that means very, very soon. In the meantime, I'd like to thank my sponsors who mean the world to me and mean the world to a lot of people out there and will continue to mean more and more. Uh, but of course, they are most useful when everybody else is not panicked. For what they have that is bluemonsterprep.com and if you have been watching the news if you in any way shape or form over the last couple of years you have seen every every kind of disaster known to man natural and otherwise and even natural disasters seem to be a little bit more enhanced than uh than usual so Go to bluemonsterprep.com and take a look at everything that you could you could possibly get for the house or a fallback location or anything like that to make your transition from where you are now to safer dwellings a little bit easier. There's two-way communications over there that you should get, radios, solar power generators, gas masks, heirloom seeds for your crisis garden, drinking water filtration, emergency food. Uh, you can never be too prepared. All the first aid you could possibly need, whether they be first aid kits, first aid cabinets, or specialty specialty devices, they have it all, and they have the knowledge with which to train you. So go and call up Pat and Gina at BlueMonsterPrep.com. Say Frank sent you. Use the Frankly promo code. Get your shipping taken off the top of it, and make sure you go to bed with a little bit more peace of mind because... Whether it's fire or chemical attack or whatever the hell it is, lights going out, it's just it's just good to have a little bit more insurance that you can control and that is physical. And that's what all this stuff is, after all, insurance. All right. Uh, what else do we have? We uh, Well, I, I mean, go and check out everybody on the affiliates page. Got wonderful friends there. Wonderful friends there just waiting for you. Tomorrow, great guests. Friday, great guests. I think Matt will be in studio Friday, I think. He's in the emergency room right now. He slipped and fell. I don't know if he passed out or something. We'll see. But uh, he's getting stitches in his eye right now, and he says he's getting a fat lip. So he didn't get into a fight with anybody, but he, he fell. Something happened. I don't know what he's going to... He just sent us a picture of him with a gash in his head. I said, oh, God. What now? Um... 
that's all I got for you on this end of things. So perhaps there'll be more to report later on. Okay, into the grab bag we go. First one up is from San Francisco, sfgate.com. What do you know? Here is a headline featuring Katherine Feinstein. You know who she is? Everybody should know. She's the daughter of American royalty, Diane Feinstein. American royalty. Katherine Feinstein says Senator Diane Feinstein or Feinstein is a victim of elder abuse in filings. Yes. Yes, and 3 years ago, it was just abuse by an elder. Her, Diane being the elder who abused us and everybody else. Elder abuse. Let's see here. The co-trustees of a trust in the name of Richard Blum, the deceased, wealth hus- wealthy husband of... Oh, I didn't know that uh, Diane Feinstein's husband uh, died. The co-trustees of a, uh, in the name of Richard Blum were accused of elder abuse against Feinstein in recent court filings submitted by her daughter, Catherine, who has limited power of attorney over the senator. I did not know that Richard Blum had died. Diane and Richard made themselves very, very wealthy on top of whatever else they hell else they they got had going on by steering a lot of contracts into uh, their personal circles. The filing submitted August eighth partially confirmed what had previously been reported by other outlets that Catherine Feinstein, a former San Francisco County Superior Court judge and the current San Francisco Fire Commissioner. <laughs> has a limited power of attorney over her mother, which is the senator signed over to her in July of this year. The recent court filing notes that this entitles Catherine to make legal decisions for her mother in certain civil-related matters. So, as I was reading this, at first I thought that, so they got this going on, but, man, how the the downfall is just quick. Quick. You never think that uh, Dianne Feinstein, just like two years ago, was capable of being abused with the way that she was able to make people like uh, Lisa Murkowski cower in a corner like Big Bird. Anyway, so there's trouble on the on the horizon over there. The, uh, the, the baby elephants are trying to squeeze their way into the tent and make sure that they are set up for the new generation. Here's a headline from Zero Hedge from more from Hawaii, and there's there continues to be more and more coming out of Hawaii. We're gonna we're gonna open up our Hawaii hotline again sometime this week, maybe even on Friday night as a side thing. Why is there such a frenzy to buy up properties that were just burned down during the fires in Hawaii? I would also recommend you all go out and watch our friend Grace, really graceful's second video, a part two of what they're not telling you is going on out there in Hawaii. I'll have both part one and part two added into the weekend lineup on quitefrankly.tv. But for now, if you want to jump over there, it's it's really it's really good stuff and it begs a lot of a lot of questions that I'm sure are going to go unanswered. But you know at this point at least the questions are becoming more and more rhetorical, you know what I mean? 
Can you imagine calling up a family that has just seen their home burn to the ground and offering to buy their land for below market value? This is apparently happening in Hawaii right now on a massive scale. Grieving property owners are being bombarded with calls from very greedy people, and I think that says a lot about the current state of our society. We literally worship material possessions and financial gain, and the sheer greed that we are witnessing at this moment is absolutely staggering. This is from Michael Snyder at mostimportantnews.com. So apparently there are a lot of um, very ambitious real estate uh, collectors and developers that are, are, are trying to gobble up now land that has been burnt to a crisp, land that in many cases probably was passed down through God knows how many centuries. We're talking about an ancient, an ancient, uh, ancient culture out there. Um, Maui was hit harder than anywhere else by the fires and turned out that, uh, oh, well, Lahaina was hit harder inside of Maui. And it turns out that property owners in the area have been getting pressured to sell for a long time. So now that disaster has struck, those that wish to get their hands on these prime properties are in a feeding frenzy. One local resident made headlines all over the world after she posted a video about this. Filming herself in a recent video, the Hawaii resident said the following, quote, I'm so frustrated with investors and realtors calling the families who lost their home, offering to buy their land. How dare you do that to our community right now? If you're a victim and they are calling you, please get their business name so we can put them on blast. She claims in the clip that she personally knows multiple multiple families that were offered money from investors and realtors. When 2020 began, the average home in Lahaina was worth about $600,000. Today, the average home in Lahaina is worth about a million dollars. Now, there is a race to take advantage of those who have just had their homes burned down and it has gotten so bad that even Hawaiian Governor Josh Green is speaking out against it. See, we're going to see and it's going to have to be something that we keep track of, that people keep track of independently. And it's going to be something that people in Hawaii are going to have to take up that mantle and report on things as they develop out there. That is going to be the best source of information that we get in the, in the next couple of years as we see just who and what sinks their talons into Maui to rebuild. Who's getting what contracts, what families are getting pushed out, what, you know, how many hands are going to be changed over with the ownership over this land, uh, what kind of AI influence there's going to be, what kind of world economic influence there's going to be. This is uh, just like Ukraine. Going, they already had many, many declarations about how Ukraine was going to be rebuilt, talking about it gleefully as they still continue to shovel tens of thousands of uh now, barely trained young Ukrainian boys into meat grinders against what seems to be an impervious Russian uh, force. And the same is going to be so about the rebuilding in Hawaii. But like we said before, how much how much legs, how much time is left on the in the hourglass for the concerted reporting on what's going on out there from mainstream media one day the flip is going to be switched off and you're not going to hear from it from msnbc cnn and fox anymore it's just going to have to be something that is a little bit more of a um of a local effort 
So we'll see what happens there. But as far as the, this stuff goes, this is all over the place. You know, uh, you as you know, I talked about it when, when we lost our good friend Pam when she died in December. You know, she had asked me couple years ago to be the executor to her estate and of course I said okay I knew it was a serious thing but I didn't think that it was going to be a reality for me to face two years three years later whatever the hell it was well I'm finally I'm just starting the I'm, I'm reporting to the first citation in court about the probate hearings we haven't even gotten to the accounting phase here I don't oh you know I haven't even paid the funeral home yet I, me personally, I, I paid for all of the, the burial, everything so far. And it's, um, it's, it's been really, it's been really crazy how long this has been drawn out. I have not even been acknowledged by the court as the executor of the state. I'm just being, I'm just being a friend at this point. And I can't tell you how many times I have gotten mail and calls from people all over the place coming to me and asking about her house which it's not even i mean it's not even her house it's her husband's house it's like it's not it, i so there's no house to give or anything like that i don't have any authority like that anyway even if i were executor but how do these people know that i was named as a candidate inside of somebody's private last will and testament when no court in the country has even appointed me as executor yet you know, it, so whatever the hell these real estate companies are tapped into, it's it's spooky. It's spooky. They uh, I got the first the first couple of offers on Pam's property came to me within a couple of weeks of her death. At that time, we haven't even had her. Oh, it just this has been all the whole damn thing. So when you think about an entire. Uh, a, a uh, an entire island or a section of an island burning to the ground that had property value like that. Don't don't you think that every vulture from here to Timbuktu wasn't going to start circling around that? So it's not necessarily a conspiracy. It, uh, as it comes to that, we definitely have to see who's going to get the capture and win the rights to rebuild that uh, that island, especially with all of the the past planning and the. I don't know, the, the smart island concepts that have been floated in the recent past. But as far as this goes, it may be, you know, unethical, uh, unsavory, you know, kind of shameful behavior. But this is happening all over the place. I just know from personal experience this happened to me. Um, okay. All right. Oh, here's another one for you. Speaking of Russia. This one is from War Clandestine on Twitter. Great account to follow. Really, really great account to follow. He shared this two-minute clip. A must-watch. Russian Chief of Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Protection, Lieutenant General Igor Kirilov, on Zvezda, 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 today. Listen to this. He said, they, the U.S., have a policy of global biological control. They control that by creating artificial biological crises. They can they can rule the world through that. Kirilov highlights how U.S. big pharma companies have enriched themselves by release of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, how the damage from the pandemic is dozens times greater than the aftermath of World War II. 
And this is coming from a guy who represents Russia, who lost more people in that war than, than anybody in a war that claimed uh, 56 million across the world. But, um, but of course, there's, I, I would say that there's so, so much more at stake here right now. He also highlights Russia's repeated effort to bring thousands of documents to the UN with which the US repeatedly denies to cooperate. Those documents were about proving that we had um, clandestine biological laboratories all in, all along the countryside in, in Ukraine, especially closer to the Russian border. These are the things that actually mapped up with those early bombing strafes from the, from the Russians. And uh, War Clandestine was one of the people out there who were connecting the dots early on in the war as well. Of course, that is what prompted him to lose access to his Twitter account until recently. He was silenced early on when it was clear that the Russians were first and foremost trying to cripple any and all biological activity that we had going on in Ukraine that was supposed to be kept silent. And God knows what was going on out there. God knows what was going, what, what that was going to be the staging ground for, and what had already been the staging ground. You know what, what, what it already had served, what purpose it had already served. But it's incredible to listen to this. Uh, let's get to this one clip over here. I'm gonna have to speak a little bit for you. Hold on. Here we go. She says the growth uh, in illnesses caused by atypical infections has been noted in a number of countries right now. So we can say that this is the result of some help from American biologists. She's asking the uh, Kirilov. He says, uh, we can't say this so indiscriminately, but we are public officials after all. Um, as for biological weapons, if we assess the damage caused by COVID over the course of two years around the world, the main pandemic lasted two years. It cannot even be compared with the damage from World War II. It is dozens of times greater. However, those who make the profits, such as Big Pharma, do you mean all the pharmaceutical companies, she asks? Is, yes, the profits of the pharma companies, which are mainly in the U.S., they are colossal. That's the way it is. She says, so the question is, the question is being asked, uh, we provide the documents. That's, he says, yes, we provided the documents to the UN. The reaction of the USA we are talking about is typical. There has not been a single refutation of the documents that we presented. We sent more than 2,000 pages of these documents to the United Nations. What sort of reply did you receive, the interviewer asks. We usually get two replies, a standard one from the United States. That is all that is done is in the interest of the national security of the United States. That's the standard right there. And you must trust us. And trust them blindly. Yes, trust them blindly. They have the policy of global biological control. They understood that this works, and by creating artificial crises, which are biological in nature, they can rule the world. There is nothing they do for free. Even when they provide supplies to certain states free of charge, they are not as free of charge as they say. 
I mean, that's, uh, hey, hey, first they went to the United Nations and tried to bring the claim there with whatever documentation that obviously we have not seen. We've just gotten the cover story, and there is a unified front over there on the NATO end of things, but uh, and, and on the Victoria Nuland, Margot Rubio side of things. And then there's this. That is pretty bold to come out in public and talk about that. Really is. But hey, good news. Did you hear? Doctors have transplanted a pig kidney into a person a month ago, and it is still working. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Part man, part pig. The genetically modified pig kidney. Oh. Transplanted into a brain-dead person. Has worked for 32 days and counting. Advancing efforts to use animals to ease perennial shortages for humans. Dr. Robert Montgomery and colleagues at NYU Langone uh, Health in New York City transplanted the pig kidney into a 57-year-old Maurice Miller on July 14th. The results, which haven't been published, might provide researchers with data to support clinical trials testing animal-to-human transplants. That right there is just ghoulish. It's ghoulish. You say, hey, listen, if you need, if, if, if it's buying you some time, I'm sure you, you might take me, most people would take a pig kidney over no kidney at all, I'm sure, but it is ghoulish. Uh, NYU Langone, researchers had pre- uh, previously studied pig hearts and kidneys in humans up to 72 hours. The shorter period allowed them to see whether the human immune system would immediately reject the pig organs, transplants of pig organs, in, pig organs into baboons had shown another risky period around 14 to 30 days after the procedure. Extending the duration of studies in brain-dead humans to 30 days and beyond provides new insights, including whether uh, immunosuppressive drugs used in standard kidney transplants can help prevent rejection of pig organs, Montgomery said. Studying pig organ transplant for longer periods requires keeping brain-dead people on ventilators, raising ethical and scientific questions. For instance, extending the length of studies delaying burials and closure for, uh, for families. Yeah. You're essentially taking somebody who is not... Uh, if they're brain-dead, if they're gone, there's, not, there's nothing coming back. You're talking about just keeping keeping tissue alive so that you can do whatever the hell else. For instance, extending the length of studies delays burial and closure for families. Brain death is defined in the U.S. as irreversible cessation of brain function even if heart and lung activity can be maintained with machines. Just, um, it's just, you know, things that you already don't want to think about. And unfortunately, we have to face from time to time. But the whole human to animal thing, there is just something about that that ain't kosher. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen, 7.16 p.m. I want to talk a little bit about our guest tonight and what the topics are going to be. And then if we have any time before the 8.30 sayonara, then uh, we'll take some calls. And we're definitely going to get to your super chats. So send them to quitefranklysuperchat.com. The Rumble Rants. The gold pills on Foxhole, I look forward to getting around to all of them. So, with that being said, we'll be right back. You tune in at your own enjoyment. 
because it is the best show since the beginning of time. It has technological advancements and a more sophisticated approach. But like every great awakening that has preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is a friend and truth is essential. You are now entering, quite frankly. Now take off your pants. And jacket. One ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride! summer it's gonna be for a little bit gonna be for a little bit I hope you're all feeling good whatever the weather is by you I'm looking forward to a couple of dark rainy nights to do this show again we haven't had a dark rainy night for a show in a long time but dark rainy night weather and season is coming before you know it don't worry all right so I want to give you one more announcement and one more just encouragement. I just got to keep this up. Uh, I would love to have some people out there helping the show out with creating clips and highlights of your favorite moments. Um, whatever you see, if it's a really, I, I don't know, a representative moment in the show that you think really encapsulates what we do, whether it be humor or some kind of a deep dive or a poignant rant or anything like that, whatever the hell it is. There's a little of something, a little something of everything here. Go ahead and make those highlights. You can send them to me. You can tag me on Twitter. Send me a link to them in in uh, email. You can tag us in the quite clippy room on the Discord, which is is teeming with great ideas and people hanging out all the time. It's starting to feel like the old Discord, uh, the, that gilded room. So go ahead and do it. Quite clippy. Jump on in there. Let's see what sticks. All right. So tonight we're going to be keeping up with a little bit of the paranormal edge that we've been talking about a little bit lately, especially last night. Um... Last night we had a great show. I think Timothy Alberino already mirrored the talk that we had on his channel. So some of you might be new to the show coming on over since last night. Still, uh, that was great. That was a lot of fun to talk about what's going on in Peru. I'm thinking that a, a, a lot of people out there in these remote, a little bit more, not, not, not isolated, 
but these little more remote areas of the world, who knows what kind of tales they have and experiences that they have that they have already had to adapt into their lives. They've already had to make concessions about what this means, about their, their thoughts about the, the vastness of the universe or even just the inverse over here. What If they're coming from another frequency of light and just blipping in and blipping out and being a menace and whatever the hell is going on. Is it military? Is it all a psyop? Are we talking about advanced technology and, uh, and psychological warfare to the umpteenth degree? You never know. You never know. But um, we will continue on with some of the those bigger questions tonight, even some supernatural themes, with our guest, Dr. Diana walsh Pasulka, uh, who is an American writer and professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, studied uh, religion and technology, and writes a lot about it, too. I, I can't wait to speak with her about that in particular. Religion and technology. Hmm. She spends years interviewing influential scientists and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who believe in extraterrestrial intelligence. Pasolka has explored spiritual phenomena, visited the purported UFO crash sites of New Mexico, and roamed the archives of the Vatican. Now that's something, I think she has a little something extra for us tonight on that. I had to ask her about it. Because, you know, obviously there's certain parts of those Vatican archives, the, that library there, that nobody's getting to. And it, it's, hard enough to, it's hard enough to just uh, to scratch the surface of what the hell's really out there. And we talk a lot about, you want to talk about religion and technology, or at least churches and technology. Whenever we've had um, people like Andrew Bishago on, invariably something like the, the chronovisor will come up. I want to see if she knows anything about that. But there's more. There's so much more that we can get around to. She, uh, Diana, was chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion from 2015 until 2019 and was principal investigator for the Teaching American History Grant, which ran for three years from 2009, and her work has been featured in various popular venues. She wrote in 2019 the book American Cosmic. I've got the, I've got it right here. Take a look. That's it on on the screen. American Cosmic: UFOs, Religion, and Technology by D.W. Pasulka. And the reason why this is so interesting is not just because of it's not just another UFO book or anything like that. It's the way that she has, she made her way into researching this stuff. It wasn't a passion that had been you know, just been there forever. She finally wanted something to do uh, do with it, and she figured, this, let this be the, the uh, subject of a book. Oh, no, no, it's so much more than that, and it's interesting. We're, we're going to get around to that all. But anyway, uh, American Cosmic, this is a, I think it's a really interesting thing here because it is written from the standpoint of taking on the character, is, is the UFO phenomenon, especially in how it's playing out in society, is it taking on the characteristics of a religion of its own with differences in denomination and Genesis stories and the like? She's got another book coming out in November called Encounters. We're going to talk to her about it all tonight. Hopefully we have time for it all. There's just too much. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pasulka. How are you? 
Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, well, it's just, it's just a wonderful it's a wonderful night having you on. It's a Wednesday in August, and we're just chilling out. You know, I the first thing I want to start off with is a lot of people are, first of all, they're listening to you the first time tonight, and religious studies is one of those things where I always wonder myself why a person is drawn into it. And I, it, from what I have um, experienced, there's usually people that are getting into it that are devoutly religious that that want to be able to know more about their own religion and also competing religions and and, and maybe in in hopes of bolstering their faith and and being able to be a more ardent defender of it there are people who are completely agnostic they're agnostic people who are atheistic that uh, that see as just even a sociological uh importantly sociological uh subject to understand people and the development of civilization and then also they're a little bit more uh, confrontational, too, want to just poo-poo on the whole thing. What drew you into the study of religious studies? Was it a, a religious family that you had? No, no, I didn't have a religious family. I did have a—I um, lived in California, and my parents ha- came from families that, you know, they were— um, on the, my mom's side, they were Eastern European, and on my dad's side, they were Catholic, Irish Catholic. And their grandparents basically— um, you know would be religious but weren't i mean they weren't they didn't make my parents become religious my parents were actually just secular you know they were secular we lived in california there was a lot of new age stuff happening um but what made me want to be religious or uh, study religion was this so basically as a kid i read a lot of philosophy and I was really interested in what made people tick and I wasn't particularly religious but I was very interested in philosophical issues like you know the big questions like what's up with life why are we here that kind of thing is you know most people live in poverty in the world and there's there's injustice and so that led me to study a lot of philosophy philosophical texts like Socrates and Plato you know and so naturally I went to the religious texts like the Bhagavad Gita Hindu um, I studied the Bible. And when I studied the Bible, I actually um, read the New Testament and, you know, the, uh, the Beatitudes, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And I was really struck by how beautiful it was. And I thought, you know what? The Bible, once I started to read it, I realized that a lot of it did not make sense. And I thought, I think I want to study the original languages and I want to learn exactly what what is said in the Bible, because I also knew that it had been translated, and maybe some things had been lost in translation. And because so many people think of it as the inerrant Word of God, I thought it was pretty important to study. So I also went to a Catholic school, not because my parents were religious, just because they wanted to send me to that particular school. And it was run by nuns. So this is back in the day. And um, the nuns were extremely um, holy people, and that really impacted me too. So I, I just naturally went into the study of religious studies. So religious studies is a discipline that's interdisciplinary. So in my department, we have an archaeologist, we have a historian, we have a person who specializes in Hebrew Bible, which you know they know Hebrew, and uh, someone who specializes in New Testament, and they know Koine Greek, which is the type of Greek that the New Testament is written in, and we have anthropologists. So it's a multidisciplinary top, and some people are just really atheists. You know, they're complete atheists. So in my field, we don't advocate for religion. We just study it and we teach it. So we teach it to nurses who need to know ethical issues. We teach it to business students 
students who are going to say India or China, and they need to know about the different cultures and the religions of that culture. So, um, so that's what led me to to study religious studies. It started pretty young. That's it. Yeah, I can imagine that. I I, I went to uh, I went to Catholic schools my whole life too, and I got to know the Salesian sisters very well. So they they had a, a similar impact on me. Well, one or two I didn't like too much, but uh, all the rest all the rest were very very nice. You know, I, this is probably opening up a huge can of worms. So if it is just too huge of a topic, then we can skip over it for another time. But once you started getting into actually being able to see and and work with the the original languages in which all of these texts were written and as you were saying trying to trying to sift through whether or not some things were being lost in translation if something that was a little funny or incongruous in in, in, a, in another previous reading was starting to make a little bit more sense in original uh intent and like you said in uh, linguistics what was anything unlocked for you? Any new? What new understandings were unlocked for you by seeing things in original, original languages and in and text? And any big highlights that won't take too long? Yeah, absolutely. So what I found was was to me revolutionary, and what, this is how I teach it now because a lot of these religions are about imprisonment and people being imprisoned. So if you look at Christianity, the Jews in the first century were were very much oppressed by Rome and often killed in horrible ways. And Jesus comes along and he's basically talking to Jewish people who will listen. And he says, it's almost like he's speaking in code. He's speaking to them in parables and he's saying, wait a minute, this is how you can survive this very you know, oppressive situation. And so when I started to learn about what Jesus actually said, um, I felt like this was only something that would make me more faithful instead of make me. So I knew a lot of people who would learn about the original texts and things like that, and they became um, atheists or they became agnostic. They lost their faith. This did not happen to me. I recognized that Jesus was working within like a Socratic tradition um, of, you know, red pilling people (laughs) basically helping them understand the oppressive times that they were in and this spoke to me and so i i definitely became a lot more religious after uh doing that i wouldn't say that for all of the colleagues that i was around this happened to but um i was in a school i directly went into graduate school where i was uh at the jesuit school of theology and i was working with priests and people who were in priest in formation and I was doing an academic track and they were doing a divinity track where they were actually going to become priests and um and so I worked side by side them I learned I have the exact same training that they have other than you know I don't have the going into the parishes and that type of thing but I have the exact same academic training as as they do Mm. I can give you one though um, so one that's lost in translation is, and your uh, your listeners can look this up, it's a woman named Junia who um, Paul talks about in the New Testament, in the letters of Paul, and he talks about her um, as, you know, uh, like an apostle, like she's really important for early Christianity. Well, when the Greek uh, letter of Paul got translated into Latin, and was put into the, the Bible we have today, they mistranslate, they didn't think that, this was like about, I don't know, 100 years later, they're like, okay, you know, who's this person, Junius um, or Junia? It can't be a woman because women couldn't do that back then, so it had to be a man. So they translated her name as a man's name. So for, you know, 
1500 years, the Christian tradition didn't know that this was actually a woman that Paul was talking about until the scholarship that we have today, we're, we're able to go back and say, wait a minute, that name didn't even exist as a man's name. So we're able to resuscitate a lot of the, um, you know, the diversity of early Christianity. It's, uh, again, language. It's just, it's just huge. And, and, um, and that's something that we don't consider. And there's always these, these different printings and, and, uh, you just don't know what, but that is just interesting is, I, I would love to go come, uh, come back around to that at some point and, and talk a little bit more because, wow, that's, that's some graduate level stuff right there. And I, but you know, <laughs> yeah. what it leads, what it leads me to beyond that is this whole idea of religion and technology there's religion and language obviously but when it's such an interesting pairing of subjects to me uh because we grow up thinking at least i do uh religion in my mind is usually something that is normally ancient and therefore in some way or in many ways primitive and lacking any sense of what we would see modern as technology definitely you know so what in, in your work maybe this is just a a uh, i don't know a, a difference of definition in your work what is that nature the relationship between technology and religion or the strongest relationship between the two okay great question so when I look at technology, you have to understand when I was in graduate school, this is in the, the late nine, 1990s. And this is just as the dot-com, uh, you know, the dot-com was at its height before it crashed. So I'm in Silicon Valley. I'm at, you know, the in Berkeley, okay? And that's near Palo Alto. Um, I'm taking classes at Palo Alto, in Palo Alto at Stanford and at Berkeley. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at digital technology and especially in ground zero of where you know where it was happening and uh you know i was probably the first beta testing of kids in the eighth grade who actually had computers and were using email and that kind of thing so i was i was already interfacing with technology understanding that it was changing everything and so i had it so not only was i interested in religion but i was also interested in the changes that technology uh, was definitely bringing into my world and I could see it was going to be a global shift. And so these together came together when I started to do a work in how do people learn, how do people become believers? How do they believe, how do they get their information about religion? And it's always been through technology. So back, even back in, you know, 400, uh, 500, even before um, you know, writing is a technology. Writing was uh, was something that people devised and developed, and um, and there were people who said this is a terrible technology. We shouldn't be using it. And this is in 400 before the Common Era. That's B BC, 400 BC. This is a long time ago. So technology has always been a way in which human beings have been able to create communities through communication, and religion is part of of the reason why we have technology because uh think about the printing press when the printing press was created in you know the 1500s what happened was we had a reformation we had a protestant revolution uh, a revolution against catholics because catholics had mediated what people knew about religion and they did that through writing they did that through only knowing what was in the bible and other people couldn't read it so they they carried they owned the means of understanding the technology and 
also they disperse that technology through um, artwork and media okay so even today i get my students they're all 20 okay they come into my class and i say tell me about what you know about the genesis about the creation of the world in the book of the bible called genesis and draw me a picture and they'll draw me a picture of adam and eve okay and i say okay so i'm going to tell you that everything you know about religion you learn through the movies and you learn through watching videos and you learn through video games and you know they're like no no and i say okay you just drew me a picture show, show me the picture invariably they draw like adam and eve and i say have you read the bible and they say yeah so i said let's read it now so we actually sit down we read the bible and the bible actually has two creation stories in it one which is adam and eve but the other one is where god creates humans together okay so you know, men and women are created together. And that, those two creation stories are right there, but nobody pays attention to one of them. They only look at the other one and they think there's only one in the Bible. And that's because of media. That's because they've been saturated with, you know, you know, Renaissance paintings and things like that. So when we think of creation, these are the pictures that we have in our brains. So that's how media informs and technology, media technology informs what we know about religion. Well, admittedly, uh, I have not read the Bible cover to cover, and I, I actually intend to do that later on. I'll start later on this year and definitely in tw into 2024 because it's, it's something I think I, I, I've got to do. But you, so you're, but there's, there's two parallel create or at least complementary yeah. creation stories, or are they at odds with yeah. each other, both in Genesis? Uh, yeah, so that's what I found when I was young. So I was, you know, I'm 11. I pick up my Bible that happens to be in my house and I start reading it. I'm like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. There are contradictions. I don't understand. This is supposed to not be a contradictory book. And so that's what led me to think, okay, I have to figure this out, you know, and uh, ultimately go to graduate school. So yes, there are two creation stories in the first, in Genesis. And they're, they're side by side. And they're, they're a little bit contradictory, absolutely. And that's okay. Um, so the Bible, so for the cat, so there's different ideas about why, if the Bible's contradictory, why? Okay. So the Catholics generally don't know this, but it is the Catholic view that the book of Genesis is called sacred history. It's not literal history. And Catholics don't actually view it. The position of the Catholic Church is that we don't actually view it as literal history. We view it as inspired by God, but it's sacred history. It's not, it's a history that's not considered to be uh, completely literal. Okay. So we don't take it literally. Uh, most Christian denominations do that. There are only a few Christian denominations, some of which are Baptists, that believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and they take it absolutely literally. Uh, now, so this is a very great point that you've made about about technology, even uh, on a writing level, writing art. It is media. That was the uh, that was the biggest medium of the day. If you had a printing press, you literally controlled what was the world at the time, or you can influence the most people uh, that that anybody could possibly do at that at that given moment. Um, now, even before Gutenberg. We talk about a little bit more speculative 
technological realities and um, and uh, in, in civilizations all over the planet. Uh, for example, and I was wondering if you have anything on this because it, go, it goes outside of Christendom. Um, for example, recently the Oppenheimer movie just came out. Uh, some people have revisited because of that Robert Oppenheimer's um, interest in the Hindu scriptures, uh, Bhagavad Gita. And, and especially the comment that he made at one point about how the atomic bomb being uh, the, tested in the 20th century was the, just the first tested in modern times, wondering, leaving people wondering if he's referencing to the lore of an atomic ancient Indian civilization of thousands and thousands of years ago. That's just one, one, one example. Uh, we have a lot of people who now are starting to wonder if the pyramids in both Egypt and also ziggurats and temples all throughout its Central and South America are are less and less likely of having been ancient burial tombs and more the remnants of what was almost like a, an ancient uh, computer chip, something that was an intricate machine, a star clock, something like that. And then um, just, just things like that. So when you think about technology, do you ever go into the speculative uh, ancient technologies that people are, 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 you know, are always theorizing and battling over these days? Yeah, so um, I actually don't do it myself, but I do have friends who do that. I have a friend who does this and he's working, um, he works in England and he's an anthropologist who works on uh, what he calls, you know, like Stonehenge and the henges that you see. Mm -hmm. um, he basically identifies the star systems, which we can't see nowadays, that these were aligned with. And he created an app that allows people to actually go back in time and look at what the people back then were looking at. And so it's really interesting. So he's doing um, this type of work in anthropology. So absolutely, I think that there's a lot we definitely don't know um, about the, the time period. Even in the Republic, I think it's, it's in the Republic, Plato mentions that too, where ancient Egypt is something that he says you know, there was some type of an extinction event. He doesn't use that word, extinction event. But he basically says, you know, that these, there was something like that. Yeah. So you see that even even in that literature. Well, a lot of people who study uh, and, and research Atlantis, they use Plato as a, a great resource for where it could have been. And the, I think he was one of the, you know, well, actually, well, uh, down that line, people talked about the, um, about the, the, all the different types of locations and what it could have been and it's a really interesting thing there but to, to think about technology as just you know the we we tend to forget that the hammer and chisel is technology but yeah. from a 21st standpoint if it's not electronic it's just kind of like a baby's toy and we don't we, you know we don't we don't think about how something as simple as the wheel impacted the entire world and um yeah. and yeah so i can see how that impacted especially the spread of religion and the development of religion too so let me ask you mm -hmm. about this now before we get deeper into your your book american cosmic i read that your study of purgatory led you to ufos um, now i'd yes. love to hear about that journey because ufos obviously wasn't a, a passion of yours that you were waiting to explore you actually no. you, you fell into it go right ahead and tell us about that yeah okay so um i hate to say this but i was one of those people who i didn't see close encounters of the third kind i wasn't a believer in ufos i was actually a person who thought that was a pretty weird thing to study 
even though I was studying weird things in religion, right? It never occurred to me. Um, but no, it was off my radar completely. I had never thought of it. So I was doing my normal study, which is studying, you know, historical Catholic and Christian records. And I work in archives. So archives are, are libraries of really, really old documents. And I want to show, I have one actually. So this is a digitized copy of a manuscript from the Vatican. And this is what they look like. Wow. So this is this is the canonization wow. record of uh, Joseph of Copertino, and it's written in Latin, but also partially written with um, 17th century Italian, and um, so it's really old. But I was studying things for the Purgatory book that were a lot older than this. Okay, and so archives house these really old manuscripts, and so I was in there doing research on this dogma which is a doctrine in catholic culture which is this idea that when a person dies their soul doesn't actually go to heaven but it doesn't go to hell so where does it go it goes to this in-between place called purgatory and so catholics used to believe in this they used to do devotions to it through souls in purgatory and all of a sudden after the 1960s it fell off the map for catholics and so my question was why did that happen so I spent a lot of time doing a research about that, figured it out, and also figured out a lot of other strange things. So was, I was going through these manuscripts, you know, looking at them, and I kept coming across aerial phenomena and, you know, records from every century of aerial phenomena. And so I would just write them down on a side note and, and think, okay, well, this is weird. And I'd cite them and I'd say, okay, someday I'm going to go back to this and look at this. I have to finish this book first. So I finished the book and then I had this big log of aerial phenomena. We're talking about things seen in the sky like orbs, things seen in the sky like spinning disks um, with beings that come out, like shiny beings wow. and things like that. Yeah, it was really weird, and I thought it was really weird. And I and so a lot of times when the Catholics say in the 1800s when this happened to them, they would think that these were souls from purgatory, and they needed to be prayed back into purgatory. That's what they thought. So there was there were different interpretations that they would give them. And so I had this list, and after my book was, was to the press, I was on to my next books, but I had this list. And so I had a friend and I said, what do you think of this log? You know, what do you think of this? And he started to read it and we were having coffee and he read it, you know, he read through a lot of it and he looked at me and he said, ah, it reminds me of Steven Spielberg, UFOs. And I thought he was crazy. I was like, I was ready to kick him out, you know, get out of here, <laughs> you know, you're crazy. And he said, no, I'm not kidding you this does sound like modern day contemporary reports of ufos and so there was a coincidence um there was a, a ufo conference uh that was close to where i lived and i went to it and i heard people talking about their experiences and they sounded exactly like my log and so that's when it clicked for me like oh like yes that's exactly there's a there's a line there's a tradition of this and so i decided to do that study so um i i did that study i wasn't prepared for what i found but that's how this that's how the study that's how somebody who studies religion gets into this i uh, well i mean i'm to, to try to take that from the beginning and the the canonization record of uh, which which saint we talk about saint joseph uh who St. Joseph of Copertino, he's the guy who levitates. So you see, if you ever see pictures of him or paintings, he's levitating. 
uh, like, you know, like flying around. And maybe that's who's been spotted in the Peruvian jungle lately. They're having a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I was just... First of all, the 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 uh, manuscript you have over there, even though it's just a, a duplication, it's incredible. I, I think yeah, that it's just so yeah. cool. And and through pining, pining through all of that, combing through all of the stuff like that is where you started finding these, these detailed um, records of... Aerial yes. phenomenon. Yes. And do yes. you do you speak uh, Latin? Do you speak what kind of languages do you? No. Do you, okay. No, no, I don't speak Latin. So Latin is actually, I don't think anybody really speaks Latin these days unless they're at a Catholic church from like, and it's a traditional mass. Mm -hmm. um, some people do. I have a graduate student who does, um, but I, I'm head of the translation, so there's so I can translate. There's first century Latin, there's mid medieval Latin, there's 17th century Latin. So even different time periods, uh, you have to specialize in that one, um, that one, like I could do, you know, first century Latin, but I can't do 17th century Latin. But I do have this because these are actually records that I keep um, and I'm part of a translation effort and I hire the translators. Believe me, it's not easy to find people who can translate 17th century Latin w intermixed with this Italian. I bet. You know, so, I mean, if we don't find them, though, we're going to, like, lose the, you know, the knowledge in these records. So we are do so we do have some. Um, they translated the first part of it, and I think it was really so weird for them that they they're like, we don't care if we're getting paid for this. We don't want to do it anymore. Uh, there was a there's a lot of like really disturbing things in in those in the manuscripts. Oh man, see now, see, you, now I want to go off and follow that rabbit hole, but I have to stay focused. I have to stay okay. focused. Damn, what disturbing thing! Like I'm saying, I'm thinking, what else? What else are we talking here? But, but you know, but I, I gotta say, and you're going through these manuscripts and you're finding a lengthy enough list of aerial phenomena that is that is being described here in some where you're even talking about pilots of crafts and things like that yeah. i mean the the fact that this would become a very recognizable and undeniable pattern and the fact that it is all prior to the 20th century is huge because uh, if you were paying attention to this over here in our modern times anybody who follows ufos uh you tend to think that this is really a 20th century phenomenon where and everybody has reasons why it was the dawning of the atomic age we became almost like a galactic beacon for anybody out there that might have been monitoring us or whatever the hell it is but by you finding things like this that are are you know from an age of antiquity uh, these are huge because right off the bat, you could you would think that it eliminates the involvement of government, of military, and even modern commercial aviation. That's 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 right off the bat. You can eliminate that as to what might be going on, and I think that's huge. That's really huge. Yeah, it is huge. Um, another thing I want to say though, and this is kind of like a corrective, is that because um, I'm in conversation with a lot of the people who are a part of the hearings that are happening mm -hmm. um and their position is very secular in that they look at these things as like you just use the language of pilots i'm not sure that's what's going on i mean when you do look at the primary source material for some of the aerial phenomena you do see things that appear to be like vehicles and they appear to be intelligently um 
flown, if you will. Uh, but to call what's happening like a, a, a person, like a pilot manning these these craft, I think that that's maybe not accurate. Okay. Now, let me let me run a, a thought by you. Because I've, I've, I've wondered about this. A lot of this stuff has made me, especially when we talk about biblical themes on this show, and I'll have people who will come on. In fact, my guest last night, uh, very adept in talking about um, the ancient celestial battles in the Bible, whether or not these were real kinetic, yeah. kinetic events, and that whether mm-hmm. or not these things in the we're talking about maybe biblical entities, heavenly hosts. It made me wonder about what we read in the Bible about heavenly hosts and whether some of these more amorphous craft are in fact just, I, I don't know, like, for example, tell me if I'm on the right track. If we didn't know anything about fireflies, some of us could say that fireflies were in possession of advanced technology in the way that they generate light from within. Now, yeah. I know it's a lot it's a lot different than than seeing a craft that defies the physical laws of the universe and makes a uh, a right angle turn, but do you see any possibility that at least some of the activity in the skies is not necessarily made possible by way of technology that had been developed, but perhaps it could just be a natural state of being? Okay, so I think I understand your question, but I'm I'm not sure. It's so like, I'm going to yeah. I'm going to ask Okay, so um, when I see when I see this aerial phenomena in the sky, let's put it from the from the standpoint of historical people. Okay, back in like a thousand years ago or something, um, they're describing it. They're using the technology, the advanced technology that they know of, which was you know a thousand years old, just like we do. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to say we just don't get how these people or these ETs or whatever they are, are flying in this way. We just don't get it. Therefore, it must be this and this and this. And we use like the language of quantum physics and we use like the most up-to-date science that we have, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what they did back then too. So let's take a first century, I think it's first century, it's actually maybe, um, it's first century before the common era. So it's, it's not yet in, you know, it's not yet after Jesus, it's before Jesus and it's in Rome and multiple witnesses report that they see a, like a battle in the sky and they're talking, they're calling. Now what's the most advanced technology that they have at the time? Well, it's going to be the war technology that they have, like the shields that they use. And in fact, they call these things, flying shields they're saying that these are they look like flying shields just like uh kenneth arnold who in 1947 saw a bunch of things that he called flying plates and then they got that you know became the flying saucer because he said that they were skipping like this and that they they looked really shiny so this sounds very similar to the flying shields that they were seeing back in first century rome Right? Yes. So, so that's what I would say. I would say that even us today, we're doing the best we can to describe something we completely don't have a framework for understanding. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think that's a, that's a, a more than an adequate answer for what I was getting at. Um, now, Snow, I know that you have also spoken uh, to space people who have been members of the space program. 
um, and you have conducted countless interviews since being led down this path. What about the astral plane, though? What about the work of people who are in places like the Monroe Institute, Project Stargate, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences. It seems like an incredible blend of both the ethereal and the physical realms that are that seem to be occupied by both the UFO paranormal stuff and religious supernatural themes. Are you ever, you ever interview people on that level uh, that do that kind of work? Well, strangely enough, um, yes. And it's not like I intended to do that. It's just this. Every time I went to talk to the people who were most, mm, what you call embedded in the study of the, the topic, UFOs or UAPs, um, I found that they were actually very, very interested, if not utilizing tactic strategies that you would call completely subjective. So they weren't using this objective science. We tend to say that science is objective. And, you know, religion is subjective, it's it's internal. But I didn't find that at all. I found that every single one of the most efficient of these scientists were actually really, really esoteric and subjective. And they were doing remote viewing and they were doing these things that I would call downloading. And so I started to look into this and I found that even the roots of our own space program, both the Russian space program and the American space program were absolutely it, they emerged out of these kinds of esoteric movements that you're just describing like the remote viewing the sri i mean of course that wasn't around back then but these people were doing it anyway hmm. so so i started to ask around about this and what i found was that a lot of people just didn't want to talk about it because they knew that that was the case but they thought that it would sound too weird and of course it does sound weird but that's what i found do you think that that, that approach has been the the main contributor to this to the UFO um, community uh, being more and more susceptible to acting very religious. You said that this has actually created a a new religiosity around UFOs. Do you think that, that is just a something that is just we're prone to do as human beings? That this kind of thing will happen, or is it uh, you know a direct result of that kind of esoteric approach to this by the leading names in the field? Okay, so I do think that people, human beings, whether we call it religion or not, and by the way, religion is a Western creation, a Western terminology, and other cultures don't necessarily, like some indigenous cultures don't even have this idea of religion, but they still have a, uh, an idea of an invisible world that impacts this world, and that you know there are intelligences within forests and things like that. And we're just actually through science beginning to figure that out as Westerners. So I just want to say that, you know, even the demarcation of religion and not religion, that's something that we we do um, in the West. Um, so when you look at, um, so you're asking me, is this, is it, what I say is this, is that when I did do studies of my friend uh, who became my friend, actually, I first worked with him on this book, um, his name I call I don't use his real name but he does work for the Space Force and he was a space shuttle mission controller until the mission until the space shuttle program shut down um, you know throughout the whole time period and he he shared with me a lot of the basically rituals that they would do just before launching rockets that they still do so even SpaceX and, you know, Elon Musk's out there, you know, doing his thing. These people that are actually launching the rockets, 
they're involved in these really interesting rituals where they have to wear the same clothes, they have to eat the same foods, they do a prayer before the rocket launches. Uh, these are completely um, first century Roman theology because they're, they're, you know, putting emblems on their, you know, they have these patches, but they also have the same, uh, the same picture on the patch is also on the rocket. And it's usually a, a Roman god or goddess. Um, so it's really, you know, I mean, you you can't get away from religion here when you when you're looking at this. Wow, I, I don't think that, I don't think that that really shocks anybody knowing just what the the uh, the occult roots of even NASA was like so many years ago. But that's just, I guess that's just that's part and parcel of mankind. We are very ritualistic people, and I think over time. I think over time, um, you know, whatever the majorities are, their their ritual uh, wins out a lot of the time. You know, let me ask you about this, because when we talk about people who are devoutly religious, and then of course there are UFO experiences. I guess we'll start specifically with Christianity, since that is the one that hits hits home for a lot of us uh, over here in in the United States and around the Western world. But UFO experiences for the devout just do just from doing this show diana over the years as long as i've been doing it there have been quite a few devout christians who have written to me or called in in a state of almost conflict because they're they are are contactee they have contactee experiences with non-human entities whether it be an abduction or visitation or any other kind of personal revelation where they're left with this knowing a very sober knowing that they experienced something, though unsettling, it was unsettling, but it was not a demon. It didn't seem like a military experiment. There was, and, and most importantly, it was physical. It wasn't ethereal. This causes a lot of them to shut up about it because there is just the inference of there being a category of intelligent being that is not human nor di- uh, demonic outside of those two opposing categories that verges on sacrilege for some of their peers um do you have a lot of experience with these uh these accounts of people who are who are struggling between a, a, an unshakable faith but an experience that they that they know was outside of the bounds of anything that they can consider normal absolutely yes this happens to a lot of people and i if i if they come into my experience i try to help them by explaining that this is something that happens within the Christian tradition. And uh, if they're Catholic, I point them in the direction of Teresa of Avila, um, who is a, but a doctor of the church. She had an experience like this. Um, she, she talks about it. It shocked her. She wasn't sure at first if it was an angel. It was a being that was about three feet tall, and it was shiny. And it, you know, it, it was... It, if you've read John Mack's book, Abduction, um, you'll see that she could have been, her experience could have been a chapter in his book. Hmm. <laughs> it follows along the the template of what happens during an abduction. Uh, but she, because she was so confused, she called it a cherub, which is a, an angel that's small. And she said that it didn't look like an angel that she was, like the type of angel that any that she was aware of. So she said, I'll just call it a cherub. Um, so yeah, so these happen. And of course, people are going to not talk about it. It's a traumatizing experience for one. But also, once you tell people about it, you get re-traumatized because 
up until these days, uh, people don't talk about that kind of thing. And they're pretty horrified to hear about it because they're thinking that it is something demonic or something like that. So they're going to look, look at it through the lens of their own faith and experience. And if they're completely atheist, they're going to think their friend has lost it, right? Mm. And, you know, these are all terrible things that that actually lots of people have happened to them and they could be professionals even and you know their jobs could be at stake if, if any of this gets out absolutely um well uh, well let's go outside of christianity uh, do you find that other world religions are facing similar challenges when they they try to reckon uh what's going on above them and what 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 other personal uh, more intimate experiences a person has when encountering the unknown like this is is this uh this can't just be a can't just be a topic of debate within christendom no it's not it is a global phenomenon and people have different interpretations of it from different cultures and they even call it different things um there are also what i found and i actually write about this in the book that i, I just finished um indigenous cultures they even have their own traditions of uh contact um and they do talk about that and they don't actually they don't have the fear base. Well, some of them do. They some of them say, "Don't make contact with these things. If they come, you know, do your best to try to ignore them." Um, but they also have levels of initiation into the knowledge of these things, which I also found in our own traditions. So we also have, um, you know, if say people back in the day called called these things various types of angels. Well, there there are there are esoteric movements within, you know, at least. Um, Christianity and Judaism that account for these kinds of experiences and and actually help people negotiate how to deal with them. Mm. Well, 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 on that then, let me ask you this: Do you have a uh, you have a lot to say about synchronicity and a lot to say about yeah. what we you know what we are able to kind of bring into our con- uh, experience by really training our consciousness to to see more of one thing almost like self-fulfilling prophecies how to how to set that aside from what is just the very digital um you know I, I don't know we're being spied on constantly by technology and the algorithms are just giving us things that we say out loud that we don't know we're speaking into some microphone on the other side of the room so there's a lot of things that mimic synchronicity but it's just creepiness from the technological age <laughs> yeah. and, and so but outside of synchronicity and algorithms what about miracles what have you done obviously you're in you're in those vatican archives you're if you're reading anybody's canonization records the Every Catholic saint has at least three miracles under under his or her belt. Um, so what have you been able to pull uh, from that since it does fall within the supernatural, the paranormal sometimes? Any thoughts on miracles? Yeah. 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 I mean, once you start studying religion and you're, you know, you're not what we call reductive, which is we just say, oh, there's a natural explanation for this because sometimes there's not a natural explanation and we have to just be open-minded about that. Maybe there will be in 30 years, but we sure don't know it now, okay? So there are things that then it's a miracle if we don't know the natural explanation for it, and it seems as if this should not have happened, right? We call that a miracle. Um, So yeah, I mean, there are miracles all the time. And so when you're asking me about synchronicity, are you asking me about 
my thoughts about it as related to miracles because those are two different kinds of things. Oh I yeah, I, I know they're two different kinds of things, but I um, but but in in some way they they are kind of mystical and magical. You you wonder yeah. whether or not with synchronicity, if you are you are tapped into something energetically and consciously, that there is a. Uh, maybe an uh, in, in, in involuntary, but uh, I don't know. There's there's something that is feeding into it. Uh, maybe we do it involuntarily, but it happens. Um, and then, of course, miracles, it, it almost seems like that's it's a superpower somebody has been able to wield at least for a moment. So um, I, I don't know if you can if you can speak to both if you'd like, but I, I just wonder what you had on miracles in particular. Oh, yeah. So miracles are uh, are absolutely they do happen um and especially when you're doing the um you know when a when a saint is being canonized and the miracle has to be verified it goes through a process that's rigorous um not only do they get people on the case who are not catholics but they also get people who are like called devil's advocates that's actually where the devil's advocate comes from is the canonization of the saint um, the, the people on the committees for this do everything they can to try to say, no, nah, this didn't happen. No, there's this explanation. And they get medical doctors who are not Catholic. You know, they do their best to, to verify because they don't want to be found wrong. Um, and so, you know, when a miracle, when there's an established miracle, it's because we can't find an explanation for it. Hmm. And it seems miraculous, especially because it's synchronistically tied usually to the person asking for that saint's inter intercession. So they're not praying to the saint. They're basically saying, um, you know, uh, St. Teresa, help me, you know, help me by, uh, by pleading my case to God or something like that. Um, save my child who has cancer or this inoperable terminal illness and then the child is miraculously saved well there's the synchronicity of this happening while the person is earnestly asking for it and then the doctors come in and they're like okay the, yeah it doesn't look like it should have happened so they verify it so that happens and that's how synchronicity is, is linked to it what i found was that a lot of people have synchronicity um and synchronicity are these these coincidences that happen that seemingly should not happen probabilistically seemingly should not now if the world is infinite you know if time is kind of simultaneous but infinite um maybe then they would happen but why do they happen so much to certain people all the time um i had a friend i have a friend named gary nolan he's a, a professor at stanford and um, he was actually a person in my book who i worked with in american cosmic and i called him james in my book because he wasn't comfortable at that time in 2019 being out as a professor who studies ufos but he did some calculations about synchronicities and the probabilities and he said no it's just not some things are just not possible and truly weird you know in terms of synchronicity some people think that synchronicities point to like an inner meaning um they happen a lot to me especially when i'm doing research uh one just happened to me i'll give an example i i'm writing this um this encyclopedia entry on ufos uh and i needed a citation and I couldn't find it. So I had it about a year ago and I was like, okay, I know I had the citation. I looked everywhere in all the computers that I have um, and I couldn't find it. And I was really upset with myself because this was the one thing I needed. I needed this, this article. And so I gave up and I said, ah, you know, I guess I won't include that article. And then somebody I don't know from Switzerland um, emailed me and said, have you, 
have you read this uh, article? And it was that article. And I thought, oh, this is great. This is the exact one I need. And at the time, I needed it too. I needed it right then. And I thought, this is a pretty interesting synchronicity. Now, some people could say that it was meant to be. Well, I can't say that because I can't prove it. But I can say this. I sure did need it, and I'm going to use it now. So it was really helpful. It, you know, whether we're talking about what's going on above us or whether we're talking about these things that it almost feels like we, we, we tap into a current of energy and there is just limitless possibilities for some kind of a need to be fulfilled in unexplained ways or whatever, there is just, I don't know. I, I think you're in the, the best field of work to be able to, 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 to ask all the big questions about where, where we really are going and what we're, what we're meant to be doing here and what our abilities are. I mean, there's just so much, there's so much about ability that is, yeah, deja vu, I don't know if deja, what deja vu has to do with synchronicity, but there's something weird. I don't care what people say about deja vu. There is something that defies all logic about the familiar, familiarity of, of getting caught in deja vu, especially when it doesn't stop. You know, I just think that there is so much here, and, and uh, the, the further you dig, the farther uh, you, you always find another point that connects. And uh, so tell us a little bit, of, unless you had something else you wanted to add to that, please tell us a little bit about your upcoming book, Encounters, um, because I think it is, it is a little bit more complementary to what you put out with American Cosmic, no? Yeah, so, um, all right, so I finished American Cosmic, and um, so it didn't stop there, you know, all the things that I discovered. And so I, I wrote Encounters, and what I wanted to do, because after... I wrote the book American Cosmic before the New York Times, Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal, and Helene Cooper, uh, you know, published the 2017, you know, uh, black programs and UFOs. Um, so my book was in press, and then it came out. So I had written the book before it was public knowledge about the programs that were being, you know, the government ran about studying UFOs. And so in my book, American Cosmic, I'm actually talking to the people who are doing that and saying, okay, wow, you know, I didn't know this was the case, <laughs> but this is happening. And so I published it. And then, and then the government, you know, comes out and says, yeah, we're doing this. And, um, and then all of a sudden we have these congressional hearings and everything. And what I noticed was that there was a huge emphasis on the very topic of if there are these crafts and crash retrievals and, you know, what are these things? And I thought, this isn't actually what I found to be the case. So I wanted to put out there a book that talks to people who would know what these things, you know, the nature of them and things like that. And it's not what we're, we're hearing. And so I, uh, I just wanted, you know, I wanted to kind of set the record straight for at least what my research discussed and, you know, talking to the people who are actually interfacing with these things. And, and so uh, Encounters is exactly that. It's talking about, it's not the military UFO. It's not the UFO that the military is saying, you know, these are things, they have pilots, this is happening. You know, basically looking, looking like our craft but only super advanced. Well, these things are way weirder than that. And so I wanted to share that story. So that's what Encounters is about. And it's not just about encounters with UFOs, although most chapters are about that. It's also about 
encounters with other things that happen along with encounters with UFOs. Because when people do encounter UFOs, sometimes other things happen to them too. Um, and you can even see this in media. Like I did finally see Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I thought that Steven Spielberg did a really good job of showing the really weird stuff that happens, like the paranormal stuff that happens when people have these experiences. And so when I talk to people who've had these experiences, a lot of paranormal things are happening in their homes, around them, and things like that. And I wanted to give insight into that. Oh, well, that's, I can't wait to read this then, especially because, and I've, I've read about that stuff there too. It's, it's almost like the phenomenon of getting struck by lightning and surviving and then suddenly you can read somebody's mind afterwards. There's just yeah. something, something yeah. that's not the same. And I, uh, that's, you know, one last question, I guess, and because it does, it's not a spoiler or anything like that. And everything that you have done in the research that has, that has been, that has followed your initial your initial spark of uh, of inspiration on all of this have you noticed whether or not there is more so of a benevolent or a malevolent presence in the skies above us and people are always wondering whether or not we are um you know we're we're about to make some you make really great friends with our galactic neighbors and they're going to tell us a new way of you know growing corn and being more sustainable and all that other crap and they always come here like Klaatu and they say saying oh yeah everything's fine if you just save your planet and vote for this person you know like what is a um what do you what do you take away from all this stuff do you do you think that they are a little bit is there any motivation there's a people who have horrific horrific stories that can only be described as terrifying there's others that are just whether even i mean even a more benevolent experience you're still coming face to face with something you don't see every day it is going to leave you awake at night so uh, is, is there a spectrum of experience that you have collected from people that are more so uh, concerning or exciting yeah this is such a great question and super important. So I would say that it's a, it's a sad situation that it's both, but mostly I would say not the best, okay? Oh. So, you know, that's my California way of saying it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, not the best. So uh, I, have a, I have a space, a couple pages devoted to this in American Cosmic, where I'm in New Mexico with with James and Tyler, and we're about to go to the crash site, right, of a of a you know alleged UFO crash site. And I'm not I'm not a believer. Okay, so I'm there. This is a, back in 2017 or 2016, around that. So I'm going to this place where we're at this bed and breakfast. You know, we're hanging out, we're drinking some beer in at night. And um, Gary shows us some of his research. Now, he's that Stanford professor. And by the way, if anybody's really interested in following up on this question of yours, they need to watch his Tucker Carlson interview because he actually does talk about this. And so he's showing us his research. And with Tyler, the research is the, uh, the UFO experiences have been positive and they've helped them create amazing technologies, right? But what Gary's doing is he's looking at people that have been hurt. And so he's showing photo after photo after photo after photo 
of the injuries that these people have sustained. And I was so disturbed after seeing that. I remember um, I prayed, you know, I said, I don't know what's going on, but I pray for protection of, you know, what I'm doing, you know, what I'm learning here. Hmm. And so I would say that um, I actually just found a letter that I got in 2019 somebody had read american cosmic and this was a person who was not who was pretty was elderly so they they did they wrote me a hard copy letter and so i had it in a stack of mail that i just haven't opened because i've been so busy but i opened it about a month ago and i read through the whole thing and it was pretty long and this person was young in the 1950s and had had a series of, of sightings and was very fascinated and then followed the UFO you know topic and then what happened was was followed it to the point of like learning about all of the different um, you know sightings in in that person's area and then finally said and then when I realized that a lot of pilots were being killed I stopped doing this research mm. and I mean that really stopped me too I read the letter up to that point and I was like okay mm. you know Oh, uh, I, well, I, I think that's, and you elaborate on this a little bit more in encounters, you said? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I just present the data, you know, that I've, I've collected from good experiences to bad experiences. Yeah, it, run, it runs the gamut all over the place. It does. It, it really yeah. does. And, um, man, oh, man. Well, I, I know one thing, uh, Doctor, you got to come back on after that book is out, whether it be okay. right a, right after the new year or something like that. Who knows? But I'd love to have you back. You've been a, a really uh, wonderful time uh, and wonderful conversation as well. Uh, if there's anything else, please let people know where to find you. Your I have your, um, I think your URL is in the description of this episode. I have to make sure it's there. But uh, where should people go to follow all of your work? Sure. So I'm D.W. Pasolka, dwpasolka.com. I think that website is actually being redone right now, um, but it's it's up there. And um, I'm on Twitter at that handle and also Instagram. Wonderful. Well, I have you tagged on the Twitter post right now of us going live, so there's that. But I'll make sure that all of that is inside of the description of this episode before I upload it to all of the uh, the on-demand services and podcasts. But this has been a wonderful night. Thank you so much, Dr. Pasolka. It's great to have you on, and I hope to have you back again soon. Thanks a lot. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. That is a nice um, – well, I'm, I'm, I'm over the moon. I really am delighted about that. Let me go into your super chats because I'm not going to go on a intermission right now. We got one from Stowe Stoops. It's great when what great Wednesday, Frank. Thank you, Stowe Stoops. It's great to great to have you in there. Um, and on Foxhole, let's see, eight twenty three. I don't think I should take any calls either. Um, I'll probably just collect whatever you guys and gals say in the emails, and maybe we can take some calls uh, in the second half of tomorrow night's show, if there's any time, or on Friday night. We'll mix it in with Deer Scene episodes. Maybe I'll set up a Deer Scene line. The specialty line on Friday night will be Deer Scene. Everything else will be whatever is left over from... How do you not have something to say about tonight? That's... uh, I had a lot of fun with that one. Robert Sarns, thank you so much on quite frankly.tv Sean Joe Jesse 81138 
Boyce Blanc, Doug Simi, the, the usual crew. I'm very, very happy and, and grateful for them all. And Big Lou says, Frank, someone needs to do clips from best segments of every show. We can grab them and share social media. Oh, listen, I know, Big Lou. I know. The question is, who's going to help me do the clips? Because to bring on somebody to do it, you have no clue how thankless the situation is. I go live for two hours every night, and inside of every two-hour show, no matter how uneventful it is, and I don't think we have too many uneventful shows, there is so much. There's funny things. There's weird things. There's, there's so much thing. It's so much inside of every two-hour show that for some people, it could be a week's worth of media. And to sift through all of that, make timestamps and notes and all that, cut it all out, get ready to, to be put out there, and have the next night start all over again, and then the next week, the next month, and every night, is it's a lot. It's a lot. So that's why I say if we can, if we can get a lot of people in the audience, everybody out there, to help out little by little, the little turns into a heaping pile of a lot. And then at that point, no matter who upload, you don't even have to send it to me. Upload highlights of the show. Tag me in it. If I see it, if I like it, I'll grab it myself and I'll upload it to uh, the, the Instagram, to the Rumble or something like that. But the more, the more the highlights of the show are out on the internet, the more people are going to see it and say, Where, what's this from? Invariably, more people are going to come and we'll have more Franklies in our midst and more fun for all the years to come. So I, uh, I really, I, I have to, I have to beg you all. I mean, I'll always have people that I can say, "Hey, man, this is a really good, uh, really good clip right here. This five minutes, can you do this for me?" I always, I'll always have Al Gorbachev out there. He's always willing to help people like that. But the the larger thrust of this operation, it would be really great to have you all involved. And um, again, thank you so much to Dr. Diana Pasulka. Hope everybody goes out and checks out her book and all the books to come because uh, there's a lot more. All right. All right. That's all I have for you. I got through all the super chats and now I have to go do book club. I have just enough time to go run down the hall and uh, do wee wee. So that's all I have. Good night. Bye. Good night. And always remember, that's... Quite frankly, is film of our live studio audience, and now our super chatter, starting with Stostube, and uh, all of our wonderful friends on... on, uh, quite frankly, superchat.com. Thank you all so much. Wonderful crowds all aboard, all, all, all across the internet. And tomorrow is another great day. Nighty-night. Just a little bit of a reminder, a word to the wise, if you will. Do not worry about the worries from yesterday. Leave it in the past. Move forward with confidence because there are so many new things to be experienced today. New joy to be had. So move forward, be strong, and have a great rest of your day.